Good morning, everyone. Have you had a good morning? I had a great morning. I put these pants on this morning. Haven't worn them for two weeks. Put my hand in my pocket. Five bucks. Put my hand in my other pocket. Ten bucks. What a good morning. Who loves money? Anyone? Well, who likes money? It's helpful. Um, I got a hundred bucks cash this morning for anyone here. You can have this hundred bucks. All you need to do is live like God doesn't really matter. Any takers? Come on. That's all you need to do. Live like God doesn't really matter. Hundred bucks. Let me try and sweeten the deal. You can still come to church. You can still sing. You can still have communion. You can still even come to the camp. It's just that the rest of the week you have to live like he does, God doesn't exist. hundred bucks. Any takers? None. It's all right, it's a fake one. Um, who would take that deal up? Who would think that's a good deal? Money for God. Uh, if you pictured that, you would probably think if people understood, they wouldn't take the deal. And yet, people take the deal all the time and all those people are in church every week. Uh, I've loved going through this journey of the minor prophets and... Uh, that looks like there's no sermon slides put in there. Uh, I've loved going through this journey of the minor prophets and believer. A serious word to the wealthy believer. It starts off in a really positive way, as uh, Zane was reading for us. Uh, Zephaniah is introduced as related to Hezekiah and Josiah. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you will know that there was a long line of lousy being great, and that was Hezekiah and Josiah. So when you're starting off being related to them, things have got to look pretty good. Particularly, Zephaniah's message was in the midst of Josiah's reign. And Josiah's reign, you can find that in 2 Kings 22 and 23. And uh, there, this was a massive time of reform, getting the nation back on track. So you would expect Zephaniah's message in a time of reformation to be a really positive message. But what is the message? I don't know if we've got any slides yet, but... It's in verses 2 and 3. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. 
I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. What does that language remind you of? Anything come to mind? The flood. It sounds like the flood, doesn't it? It's a sweeping away. But also it's a picture, it's a reversal of creation. So everything that was created in order is then deordered. It's a decreation happening. It is that sense that everything is going to be wiped out. Look at that, there it is. And the picture is that it's universal and there is no place to hide. Not in the heavens, on the earth or the sea. No place to hide from this judgment. The things were so bad in Israel and Judah under the previous kings, particularly Manasseh. Corruption had penetrated so deeply that although Reformation was a good thing, it's not enough. Reformation would delay judgment, but only delay it. Judgment would still come. Because what was needed was not just Reformation, but reset. That's what was needed. And this reset is going to begin Zephaniah says, with Judah. And here's where we see this total destruction that God is bringing might be a little bit different to what you pictured total destruction to be. It says this, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place and the very names of the idolatrous priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, and also and who also swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. So what we see here is that God's fire will sweep it's it's in in um, Zephaniah it's talked about the fire of his jealousy. This fire will sweep through and get rid of compromised religious leaders. That's what that picture is there. It's a sifting and refining of the leadership. And see, what God is doing, therefore, is not sweeping away the world, but worldliness. That's what he's sweeping away. They, have, they had priests Leaders who were calling on the name of the Lord, but also calling on other gods as well. A lethal mix. Their speech, their teaching was compromised. There was religious confusion. Bit of God, bit of the world. A dangerous syncretism. And this is important to see because if the religious leaders aren't faithful and leading faithfully, then what happens to the people? They will be led astray. The people will also become compromised. 
a mixed message will create mixed allegiance. And a mixed message is not a saving message. It's important to see this. Here is the way God deals with the world. Uh, this is my amazing diagram to explain it. God deals with the world through humanity. Okay? But he deals with humanity through his people. A subsection of humanity. The people of God. So if God's people are not faithful, if they are compromised or complacent, then all of humanity becomes deprived of the knowledge, of the saving knowledge of God. They fail to experience the blessing of God. Because the church sends out a mixed message. Half worldly, half word. And compromised leaders will produce complacent followers. And isn't this, frankly, what we see in the world today across the church? Is this not what we see in Australia today across the church? Is this not what we see even in our region, in, in, in the so-called Newcastle Diocese that we're in? A half-word, half-world message. What happens to a church that has a half-world, half-word message begins to die. And a dead church cannot serve the world. But the complacent follower can't blame the compromised leader for their position. Uh, they have said, I love to hear. That's what my itching ears want to hear. So I follow. No, the complacent will also be called to account, just like the compromising leaders. The rest of chapter 1 of Zephaniah, verses 17 through to 18, is about this great judgment day. Uh, Zephaniah talks about the judgment day more than any other book in the whole Old Testament. It's the day that God will step in and what God is going to do when he steps in is expose and deal with complacency and compromise. And it's pictured here in verse 7 of chapter 1 of Zephaniah of God inviting people to a party. That's great. You, you, you go to the letterbox and get out a letter and it's a nice envelope and yeah, you know, like a wedding envelope or something, and you, you open it up, and it's an invitation from God to dinner. I must be important, they think. I'm getting an invitation. The problem is when they get there, they realise that they are the main cause. It says this, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. Those who thought they were the privileged ones 
are actually going to be consumed. Uh, who are those who are invited in Zephaniah? It is the so-called hoi polloi. It is the royals. It is the wealthy. It is the upper class. It is those who live in the more affluent regions. And the way they're described here is really interesting. First, they are described as clad in foreign clothes. They avoid stepping over the threshold. And they say God will do nothing, either good or bad. And you think, well, what on earth is going on there? What's that about? And I'm a bit worried because I'm wearing foreign clothes at the moment. I'm sure these were made in the US. I'm not sure, but reasonably sure. What's wrong with wearing foreign clothes? Well, there's nothing wrong today with wearing foreign clothes. But at the time, foreign clothes marked you out as being particularly wealthy. They didn't need to source their threads locally. They could get the latest imported fashion from Assyria or Egypt. And, and it was, it's the uniform of the proud. That's the picture. It's the uniform of the self-sufficient wealthy one. The wealthy begin to find their security in their wealth, don't they? <gasps> what if I lose my money? When your security is in your wealth, it is therefore less and less in God. Wealth can lure us away from dependence on God, can't it? The poor, however, in Zephaniah, they need to pray. They need to be dependent on God. They need to say, Lord, please provide. The wealthy, on the other hand, don't need to pray because they've got money. And their clothing betrayed them. What's this avoiding stepping over the threshold? Well, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 5, there is this story of Dagon, the god, falling over and his head breaks off and all this sort of stuff. You should read it. It's great. And um, uh, what happens is the priests from Philistine, the, Phil the Philistine priests after that begin this tradition of not stepping, they, step, they avoid stepping on the threshold because that's where their god's head broke off. And uh, so that, there's this sort of thing. But the, the picture is not, not that necessarily the Israelite, and, uh, uh, the Israelite priests were doing exactly that, but what they were doing was mixing their religion. They would, that their, their religion was mixed with a whole bunch of other stuff along with, the, um, with what they were called to do. They had what you would only call a spiritual smorgasbord. They could pick and choose whatever they like. Oh, I'll have a bit of Jesus. Oh, I'll have a bit of, a bit of that as well. And, a bit of that. and only wealthy people get smorgasbords. Ever been to a smorgasbord? Oh, only three of you. Okay. Oh, there's the rest. This side's wealthy, this side's... <laughs> Uh, verse 12 says, On that day I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing either good or bad. Uh, and 
and here's the only way I think I can explain it. I think these people are saying, yeah, yeah, I'm into Jesus, just not a fanatic. I'm just not going to go overboard with it. And that's okay. God's okay with that. It's not really going to affect all the decisions I make every day in my life. It'll affect the decision I make on Sunday morning. Most weeks, I'll decide to go to church. But every every other day of the week, pretty much practical atheist. And God's okay with that. Now, I don't think anybody actually said those words, because nobody would actually say that, would they? But their lives showed it. What does your life show? Yahweh on their lips, but not, on, not, not in their lives. And so verse 13 says, Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. Though they build houses, they will not live in them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink the wine. See, friends, what, what complacency does is produces a heartless, lukewarm church that deprives the world of the knowledge of God. Remember Jesus said, wealth can choke faith. He said a bunch of stuff like that. We don't like to listen too much to that though. What are they to do? Well, God never allows judgment to come unannounced. Basically, he says, get your act together. Because there's a day coming, so make sure you act before that day, which is another way of saying, now is the time to act. And what are you to look like? He says this, gather together, gather yourselves together, you shameful nation. Before the decree takes effect and that day passes like wind blown chaff. Before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. Gather together is actually scrape together. So you might have thought that it meant everyone get together, but it's actually saying, now do what the poor do and try and scrape together two pennies so that you can get through the day. Scrape together. Zephaniah is saying, you rich, wealthy people, be like the poor. Because the poor, because they haven't got money, have to call out to God for help. They have to be dependent on God. And that's what you are to be like, Zephaniah says. So I don't know if you've ever seen the ads for the lotto. You probably don't take any notice of them. Remember the slogan, wouldn't it be nice? And there's a picture of, I don't know, a boat and a house and a bike and a pool. And Sorry, am I describing your house? <laughs> um, uh, wouldn't it be nice? You would never see an ad with two poor people and the slogan, wouldn't it be nice? Say, I don't know, that wouldn't be nice. And yet Zephaniah is saying, no, that would be nice because those people depend on God. We dream of being like the wealthy. 
The Bible says, no, you should dream of being like the poor. Because the wealthy, they don't have to worry about God. But the poor do. And you need to depend on him. And the word here is humble. Gather together. Scrape together. Be like the poor. Shameful nation is actually literally nation without longing. Longing for what? God. Uh, when we see the word nation in this particular situation, we're to sort of picture God's people without longing for God. What is going on there? Their wealth has meant that they do not have to scrape together, therefore they do not have to long for God. Is your life characterised by longing for God? Is my life characterised by longing for God? Is our church characterised by longing for God? Don't get this wrong, I'm not saying that poverty saves, but I am saying that God's, because God's plan for us is actually to be very prosperous in the new creation. But what wealth tends to do to people is make them proud, to find security in that wealth, to think they deserve to have it more than others. Being poor, however, puts you in the perfect position to long for God. Because when you hit rock bottom, what's the only way you've got to look? Up. When you're up, you're just looking down on everyone else. And people who look down on everyone else, they never look up. And humility here is not something you just are. Humility is something that we are to seek. So you have to intentionally go, I I'm Going to seek humility. So verse 3, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, all you who do, what he, do his commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you in other words, get humble before the day comes because God opposes the proud. But what does he give to the humble? He gives. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What do you want? Opposition from God or grace? Then seek humility. Chapter 2 says judgment is coming. It's all around Judah. It's coming from it, it, the, 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 the south has been judged. The north has been judged. The east has been judged. The west, sorry, I can't work it out backwards. West has been judged. Next stop, Judah. And when this refining fire rushes through, what will be left is just the humble. All the wealthy will be burned away. That's what Zephaniah is saying. And when this refining happens and the humble are left, what is God going to do with that humble bunch? He's going to purify their lips. It says, then I will purify the lips of the people that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder from beyond the rivers of Cush. My worshippers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. 
You see, the, the purifying fire will purify the lips of the people. Remember the lips of the people? They were half word, half world. That's lying. That's spiritual lying. Half godliness, half worldliness is lies. And Zephaniah is a word to wealthy believers to stop lying. People who say Yahweh, but don't go the Yahweh way. They try to serve God and wealth. But friends, when the purified people of God speak and live the pure word of God, no compromise, no complacency. The world is then filled with the true knowledge of the Lord. And people from every nation will do what? Will call on the name of the Lord. There will be worshippers from every nation. Uh, quickly, what nations have we got here today? Just Russia, US, Bonnie Hills. <laughs> Kendall, Peru, Peru. South Africa, South Africa, New Zealand, India, England, Philippines, sorry, easy, Scotland, Malta. That's fantastic, isn't it? It's happening. It's true. What he said is happening. When is it that this fire comes and purifies speech? When does that happen? Can you remember in the Bible when that happens? Pentecost. That's when it happens. The outpouring of the Spirit and all speak the wonders of God and the nations understand. Languages understood is what's happening. When God's multinational people speak and live the pure word of God, you know what he'll do? He's going to do this. Oh, that, sorry. I keep forgetting that picture. That, that's that. Um, it's these things. He will delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. He will take great delight in you. I, can I tell you one of the times that I feel the greatest delight is when I watch my son, Samuel, play guitar. It's delightful. I, I just watch. I, I can listen to it forever. I, I delight when my son, Jacob, plays the drums. I listen. I think, he's great. It's, it's fantastic. I delight when my daughter, Ellie, makes TikTok videos. I just watch it. <laughs> it's great. What she do? She dances, that sort of thing. Could there be anything more delightful than knowing that God is delighted in you? If you got to heaven and God wasn't there, would you be disappointed? Yeah, because here's what we're on about. He's the prize. What he thinks of us, that's what matters. And here it's saying he's delighted with the ones who are in Christ. Delighted. But what I see, he, he will quiet you with his love. And the idea here is not that he will tell you to be quiet, but that he will be quiet and just look on you lovingly. 
That's the picture that's there. He'll quiet you in his love. He'll, he'll, he'll have this, he'll just silently sit back and just look and go, oh, I'm so happy with him. I'm so happy with her or him. Now, is there anything that could make you more happy than to know that God is happy with you? Nothing. He will rejoice over you with singing. We're used to singing about God, but to have him sing about us, and that's a whole, that's what is going on there. Could there be anything to make you sing more than to know that God sings about you? He's changed his tune from chapter one, hasn't he? Literally changed his tune. Before he was saying, I'm going to wipe everything out, but now he's saying, aren't they delightful? What's happened? The day of the Lord has come. The day of the Lord came when God stepped in and the one with pure speech, which is how Jesus is described, as no deceit was found on his lips in Isaiah 53 and 1 Peter 2 2. He lays down his life for us. He takes the judgment so that we could be forgiven and be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Remember John the Baptist? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, a refining fire. The Holy Spirit is wiping out worldliness in us. He is weeding out compromise and complacency. He is, and this is the technical term for what the Holy Spirit does, holyifying us. That's your word for the day. Holyifying. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Holyifies us. Friends, God deals with humanity through his people. And when the children of God make the fatherhood of God known to the world, so salvation is brought to the world. So take home these three things today. God has done a great work of purifying you in the gospel. He's done a great work. So much so that the Apostle Paul in Colossians will say, our life is hid in Christ. You know what Zephaniah means? The Lord hides. You know, the one safe place to go in the whole universe is Christ. Secondly, God is doing a purifying work in you, which means whatever happens to you, whether good or bad, whether delightful or disastrous, it is an opportunity for you to respond in such a way that participates with God's holifying of you. So that you're able to say, Lord, whatever's happening, I trust. This tragedy has happened, I trust. That's the context for real faith. And the final thing is to watch out for the faith-numbing effect of wealth. The slow drift into practical atheism, never needing to long for him because you have money. So be like a poor person. Wouldn't that be nice? Seek first the kingdom. You know that you're seeking first the kingdom when you're generous. That's just one thing. That's why Paul will say, command those who are rich in this present world, in the church, to not be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. 
command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they might take hold of the life that is truly life. I'm amazed when we hear the story about the rich man coming to Jesus and Jesus says, sell everything and follow me. We are so quick to say, oh yeah, but he doesn't mean us. <laughs> it doesn't mean we have to sell everything. Well, he meant it for him. Does he mean it for you? We have been made to be a kingdom of priests. We are not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are to pray for the world. We are to make God known to the world. If we are compromised or complacent, the message is dampened and the world is deprived. Friend Zephaniah is a fire alarm. What do you do when you hear a fire alarm go off? The alarm's going off. Ball's in your court. 